You gonna use this? You wanna take it? No, it's, you go ahead. Come on, go ahead, I'll use the bike. No, I, I have to sort through Meadow's laundry anyway. She's gonna be here at noon to get it. Liliana's making her a leg of lamb to take back. Back in Wuj, I had grant from the state to do an autonomous research. You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. We are in season three. Today we are talking about episode one, Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood. The air date was March 4th, 2001. It was written by David Chase and directed by Alan Coulter. Uh, interesting production morsel that I saw. Federico Castelluccio's name is now in the opening credits, but caveat, only in the episodes he appears in. So my curious nature always plays out, and I wonder how that negotiation went down or if there was even a negotiation at all. You know, kind of getting like, what does that look like when your name doesn't get mentioned. Uh, HBO synopsis in the season three premiere, Agent Harris and his team concoct an elaborate new plan to wiretap the Soprano home. Now that pussy is singing with the fishes instead of for the feds. I thought that synopsis was a little underwhelming for the fact that we just started season three. So I remixed it. Mm. Sting, or more appropriately, the police get a curious remix treatment. Tony provides a rendition for the ages of Steely Dan's dirty work, not to be outshined by Naya's rendition (laughs) of dirty work. And of course, actual stuff happens. Namely, the feds get made multiple times, but somehow still make their way inside the Soprano residence to install a listening device. An otherwise procedural world-building episode with some clever comic relief in the form of savvy musical choices. Uh, Title, Mr. Ruggiero is the neighborhood plumber who effectively has, John, is it fair to say, a monopoly on the business in North Caldwell? Yeah. I would say so. And who tells us that? I think Agent Harris is the one that alludes to the fact that it's Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood. Yeah. Um, did you guys see the Mr. Rogers documentary that came out last year? I did not. I did not. I, like, I, heart, I heart emoji that multiple times. That was a fantastic documentary. Uh, love Mr. Rogers. This is, of course, a nod to Mr. Rogers. There himself. might also be a reference to Angelo Ruggiero. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angelo was a member of the mafia whose home phone was wiretapped by the FBI in 1981. Did they have parabolics in 1981? <laughs> I got a good thing on parabolics coming up. Okay, opening sequence. Tony checks for another car waiting for him, kind of like he did with Big Puss at the start of season two. I got to say, I love that symmetry of starting the episode the way that the previous seasons does. It's such like a respectful, they nod to the Godfather all the time, but they also kind of nod to themselves now because why shouldn't they? It's the greatest show of all time. Uh, I got to say, the... Walking down to get your newspaper in the morning, like, vignette, if that's what you want to call it, is the absolute epitome of the regularness of life. He does it four times in this episode. Why? I'm not sure. He gets the paper four times. Was it overkill for you? No. I think it was to emphasize the timing and um, just the regularness of life and the routine that, that Tony and his family run so that they were able to infiltrate the basement. Yeah. This is a man that gets his newspaper every day just like the rest of us, proverbially speaking, one pant leg at a time kind of thing, right? No matter what you do for a living or no matter who you are, we are all humans. I guess I kept seeing Ray Liotta a little too, who got caught in Goodfellas and he gets the paper at the end from, that's where I kept like, is that why they keep showing us this? Because in in Goodfellas, at the end, he goes and grabs the newspaper in his bathrobe. That's what I always think of when I see him go down. Oh, it's a nod to that. I think that. But then also this whole episode is about the FBI trying to get him. So it's like just it keeps playing in my mind how it might end the way Goodfellas ends where he does something bad is going to happen. Fun fact about the Star Ledger. uh, One of the articles is written by Bob Shaw. And that's actually the name of the Sopranos' longtime production designer. Mm -hmm. Also, it's another Alabama Three song just at the beginning. Yeah. Which, Which is I obviously cool. the title song of the series, right? Mm-hmm. The Star Ledger says, Mob drive for garbage routes heats up, violence feared. I thought that was a brilliant way to get all the backstory out of the way and advance this whole idea of intimacy and character instead. It tells you everything you need to know in a couple of three seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Now let's focus on the characters, which I thought is super, super confident and smart. Well, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but that story is referenced to something that's addressed in the following episode. And I don't know if you two know, but when this originally aired, both the first episode of season three and the second aired the same night. 
Yes. So, really? so imagine what this ah. really was, was a, a two-hour season premiere. Right. In real life, in it real actually life. was a two-hour season premiere. Correct. Right. So you got two episodes, and that's why this Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood, one of my arguments was, in real time, it was actually two episodes. Got it. Maybe I should watch it tw- that way then. Yeah. yeah. And and if you look at it, that full ensemble of those two episodes together, then it's a it pretty cool sense. beginning. Yeah. That's a very cool beginning. Um from Tony reading the newspaper, we cut to the FBI conference room. Here, I love how Autopsy referred to this as Chase's FBI, mm. uh, which meant, by which he meant, I messaged him today just to get confirmation of this too. He meant it's a more human and fallible as opposed to clinical and drab FBI. And it was how Chase handles characters. Uh, yeah. The yeah. character development was emphasized. I was trying to find some clever way to describe how he does that. It was like a mixture of SVU and Reno 911 totally. and Brooklyn. Like it, there was a heavy humor, but still some serious foundation to it, which is essentially what the Sopranos embody. Yeah, and remember, Naya, last time we were talking about how much we hated the mashup, which we'll talk about the Sting mashup. Yeah, but it actually was the argument is that it was Chase's middle finger to the crime procedurals. Totally, he's like, I'm going to do it my way, and police is more punk than police. Totally, that's so smart. If I it, know if that's actually the reality of what happened, then that's way above my pay grade. Totally, you know? um, that does make sense. Shout out to the FBI hierarchy map that we've seen before. Do you remember the name of the episode at the top of your head where with the with the exhibit song uh, and they're looking at all the, it's the episode where Junior gets his button or Junior gets yeah, the, the dinner. The Was dinner. that the last episode of season one? Episode four. Episode four? I think so. Uh, we'll get corrected. The FBI is doing their version of a table read, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cute. They all flip the pages at the same time. <laughs> um, my eyes turned... Uh, the faded New Jersey framed maps into um, a Jackson Pollock painting, which I know is a reach, but if also... You got destroyed I got on destroyed. Instagram, too. But it's okay, because if you actually look at it closely, it's not that far off. And I said it resembles. I didn't say it was. Yeah, that was a good defense. Yeah, it was a good defense. <laughs> and also, if you look at the paintings of Cy Twombly, they're even closer of an approximation. So I actually did a bad job of approximating the painter. It should have been a, a Cy Twombly painting. And then maybe all of our listeners who are up to speed on Art History 101 would have agreed. Uh, the line... I think at this point, it's time to consider 16 bump and sour compost. Wow. Um, Naya mentioned this a few episodes ago about how quickly they dismiss Pussy. So like the sheer dismissal of him as a pawn... If from a guy who was his apparent friend. Yeah. Remember how I was ta- talking about how they have like a bromance? Yeah. He's calling them compost. Um, it's just, it's really emblematic of the fact that this is business as usual for Tony and his people and for the FBI and their people. And yeah. pussy is just collateral damage. And a fun play on words because we were dealing with the garbage business. Totally. Very true. It was interesting. We got to see them eating, both families eating. Like the FBI, they were always eating like trashy takeout. And then we watched the mob family eat lunch like they were doing similar things in ways like giving each other hard times which is interesting to see the parallel of them but the very different very different like groups of people did you see tony in satrials at that meal did that look like the last supper to you at all 100 percent. thank you yeah okay there are only seven apostles though i really want to <laughs> i was trying to find 12 but all i could find was the exit sign the line come on whose own mother is going to testify against him it was amazing. It was an amazing way to bring Livia into the show, even though she's not there. And they also verified that they've been bugging Tony for yeah. four to five years. Yeah. which backstory uh, that we talked about in exactly. season one. Yeah. It's simple conversation confirms what uh, a new viewer would have needed to know. Right. Like why, like, why are they now interested in Tony? No, they were watching him all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learn that Tony fears parabolics, which is another nice way to know that they've done <laughs> surveillance on him before. And that got me excited because I'm an audio nerd, right? Tony avoids talking business in the house if he can. But if he has to, he'll take somebody out by the pool. Except there he fears parabolics. That's a reference to parabolic microphones. They're very directionally selective, and they yeah. can pick up audio from clean audio from far away sources. I actually have a shotgun mic out there that more or less is an equivalent to a parabolic. So, That's crazy. is that what they're using on the sidelines for football games too? Yeah, when they're, they're a form you? of so shotgun microphones are the ones that look like pencils or like little mm. cylinders, mm-hmm. and they can approximate a parabolic. But parabolics are more expensive, and they have like a cone shape that sort of like reflects the sonic whatever, and you can basically do from like his light from his street you could pick up his backyard if you, if you aim it right and so he fears prayer bugs i uh i love stuff like that in the show 
and you know this already, this is like old second nature to you now, but like when they say smart shit like that, I get excited. It's just fucking awesome. Yeah. And to say it without the education, because they're having a conversation within a room that everyone assumes they yeah, know that. That's yeah. why it's so great. We are learning something because they're speaking at an expected level of knowledge. Yeah. And they're not dumbing it down. And there's no Irving explainer telling you what it is. You have to rise up to their level or stay home. Totally. Right? I had a question when they referenced uh, 16 Bump and Sarrow. Is that to say that he's the 16th informant? Are there more? That was his was number, it? yeah. CW, 16? Yeah. What is that? Uh, something witness. Uh, uh, corroborating. Co- corroborating witness. Cooperating witness, yeah. I had a question on the cartel had him whacked. What, isn't the cartel something very different than the mob? Am I crazy? Isn't well, it, so they know that Pussy Justin. was working with, um, oh. with H. Okay. And drugs. But meaning that it might not have been the Soprano or the family. New York family. They don't think that they Soprano don't know. whacked him. Got yeah. it. Well, what's great, a great cover story for the Soprano family, too, is Pussy disappeared once before. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very likely that he could disappear again without reason. And Tony's a leader, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tony's playing chess, not checkers. So he prefer. we learned that Tony prefers basement... He prefers to talk in the basement because of the noisy AC ducts, mm-hmm. which made me wonder, why hasn't anybody, it's 2019, why hasn't anybody solved the noisy air ducts problem? It still exists today. It's an opportunity, people. Forget about edibles <laughs> for your dogs, Shark Tank edibles for dogs, and solve the noisy air duct problem. It's like a trillion dollar opportunity. As an audiophile, I can see that's a... Yeah, an issue for you. I think about it regularly. Anyway, stylistic point. The cut to the magistrate from the Fed decision to bug the house, a.k.a. the sausage factory. <laughs> um, the magistrate mentions a sneak and peek warrant. Real quick, a sneak and peek warrant allows you to break and enter the private home of another for any federal crime, including misdemeanors, which is pretty aggressive if yeah. you think about it. This was pre-9-11. Pre-Patriot Act. Too. Pre-Patriot yeah. Act, so perfectly. So after 9-11, I don't know if the misdemeanor language came in after that, but after 9-11, they actually, the magistrates have like kind of broad range to let people into your house if they want to. So warning to anybody out there who's thinking about doing any major well, federal Well, and when crimes. you talk about uh, has the show aged or could it survive in this time and place, I'm curious if the Sopranos could have gotten away with what they have with the level of um, surveillance that's yeah. available now. You mean like the creators of the show? Or to, you mean to like write the, a story about a mafia getting away with some of these things, it would be very different. Well, you know what they would be doing? They would be doing dark web stuff. And they would be doing like, uh, what's that? What's the term of those tour protocols? Have you yeah. heard that? They'd be that's how he, they'd have to be that sophisticated. But I feel like Tony was ahead of the game at the same token because yeah. he's saying log off those cookies make yeah, me nervous. The so he's already <laughs> he was Edward Snowden before we had one. He would be up to speed, and he you know what Tony would do based on what we know about him. He'd be smart enough to outsource that shit. He'd have a hash equivalent of dark web. Yeah, they'd yeah. be, and he you know what else Tony would be all up in on. Blockchain. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, like, because you, you got to survive in the game, right? You got to play the game. Push Bitcoin instead of Webistics as a that modern so day funny. thing. There you go. Yeah. That's yeah. it's the truth. Another stylistic point: the slow almost dissolve. This is where um, Naya's friend Elias is here too. The almost dissolve fade to Soprano's residence exterior was a curious choice. I thought for a moment that it was a momentum shift, and this happens multiple times. And we're gonna come back to it at the end. So just yeah. sit on that. It was an awkward transition, unlike any transition that I've seen in the show three seasons in. But is the dissolve the defining the change of the day? It's if the pa- it's the showing went, okay. I like that. It's the passage of time, right? Because they look at the clock. Did you count that? Yeah. They look at the watch a lot in this episode. They so do. I'll, I'll I'll subscribe to your notion. It's trying. He's trying to convey the passage of time. And on that note, it's uh, it's been noted that I can't take credit for the observation, but um, we see Timex yeah, on the FBI uh, agents, and it's the juxtapose of all of the gangsters wear Rolexes. So you have this have and have not. Does Tony wear a Rolex? Yeah. 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 Polly too? Mm. They all wear Polly's rocked Movados nice. before. Pussy uh, wore a red-faced. I yes. just did that puzzle. Yeah. I just put that Did puzzle you finish to... it, by the way? No, because now I'm at the suits where it's all black pieces. That's hard. 
Uh, back at FBI headquarters, funny line about running the cleaning lady's husband by counterterrorism. Again, this was pre-9-11, but shows David Chase's kind of like forward thinking on the matter because it was in the news mm. um, and they addressed it, which is, you know, so interesting to me. Um, using the FBI scene to backstory all the cast members was and, and catch us up on what's been going on in the universe since the break was clever and wildly entertaining for me, especially uh, important, right, for what was largely a cop procedural. So we quickly dispense with the pleasantries and we learn that Carmela's into tennis now. She loves her hobbies outside the bowl. Loves her hobbies outside the bowl, which, you know, is kind of driven by flirting with other men. Which is why I thought she was quiet in the car. You asked, why is she not listening to anything? Because she's so, like, focused in the moment to get there to, like, be present. So Father (laughs) Intentola was very right about how she plays this little game. Right? And yeah. he, did, he did too. Uh, I had forgotten that. This reminded me of that. And I'm like, really? Every single man that comes into your life is like a game? Like, I think it's not a it's, game. It's just more like just something to pass time, you know? She wants to feel desired by somebody the way that Tony desires his gumars. I don't even think she wants to be desired. I think she's just so bored in her life. But, but she you has, said she was a content fish in her she bowl, She is. But, like, imagine being able to, like, feed a priest and see him happy like she feels satisfaction just talking to someone else like i don't know if it's necessarily feeling wanted all always but the tennis instructor teaches her something makes her feel good but i think it's just doing something else besides cleaning the fucking living room yeah i mean i think if you're straying emotionally or physically away from your relationship you're not getting something there yeah and if she's looking to every person that's nice to her or presents you know some interest in her her um she gravitates towards that that attention. I, yeah. I think there's got to be something there. Because she was only really attracted to Vic, and she acted on that physically. But right? how great, like, I've watched that episode a ton of times, and I never caught that second look or that concern or when surprise. He, when he tells her he's moving. When he tells her that she's moving. Yeah, yeah. I didn't either, I, minus when you had the note. I was like, yeah, she does take a minute. Yeah. Again, the beauty it, yeah. it's, that's in the writing too it's also in her acting but you don't need words to convey show don't tell and she fucking shows that's why I think she's one of the best actresses where if you watch her when she doesn't have lines it's the best performance yeah. out of any of the actors the opening montage of season 2 when she's yeah. carrying the ZD so it's, good and, and her whole when they uh, have the new instructor and the second oh. day that they're there and the oh hi she's over yeah. it she's yeah. just she's, it's, she's not in charge she's yeah. not She's the not getting any attention. attention. No. And she's, she's bored. Cleaning she's cleaning the balls, collecting the balls. Yeah. I'm surprised she did that, by the way. That was an interesting. It was a very curious. She like, probably bought a package from the guy yeah. of like lessons. So she's she has to finish them out. Um, so we learned. So Carmel's in the tennis now. Meadow's settling into a dorm at Columbia and is known as Princess Bing, which to me is a telltale nod of her being the heiress to the family throne. I totally subscribe to that theory, by the way, now, more than ever. AJ's being a teenage boy with misfit friends and is known as Baby Bing, which I loved. Yeah. Uh, Again, indicating that he's not any kind of heir to the throne because they didn't even give him the title of prince. Tony is Papa Bing, which is almost Pata Bing. That made me so happy. (laughs) I got so excited when I saw that. I was like, are you kidding me? And then he's also known as Dare Bingle. I was curious about the Germanization of his call sign. Do you guys, did you find anything on that? No. It's interesting, like, they Germanize Tony, but mm. no one else. So, Carm is Mrs. Bing, and the house is, of course, called Sausage Factory. It's a fabulous name. Interesting contrast. Carmela and Tony in the car. Naya alluded to this, but Tony's got music on, and he's singing. One of my favorite sequences ever. It's all I've been listening to all week in the car, and now I have a second single, <laughs> which, by the way, at least 10 people have DM'd me. Where can we get it? Oh, is, really? It, can it happen? I just made it on GarageBand like six years ago when I was depressed when I first moved here. Can you release it? as like? I can, can put it up on can SoundCloud you? or something, yeah. It's just so rough. I, I think but, I'm playing a spoon in the but background. It's, no, but the whole, the, the Amy Winehouse doing those rough little yeah, edits that are on YouTube that have like 50 that. million views. It's a beautiful, I'm not flattering you. It's beautiful. Honestly, there's there's demand. Okay. Um. Okay. Do you guys have any thoughts on the contrast now you started to talk about it but i'm just curious if there's like a deeper conversation here and if there's not it's okay why does tony have music on and he's singing versus carmela's like a stoic sort of get to point b person any thoughts i think it's what you guys were saying it's the regularness of life tony does this every day it's like it's not a big deal for him to carmela this is the one thing a week like i imagine she has a tennis lesson once a week so it's like 
I'm out of the house. This is the one thing I do. It's an interesting contrast. I, I, I don't have a, I, I don't an either. analogy for you of yeah. like what it may mean. And I know different people do different things when they're alone in the car. Yeah. But but I'm just wondering. On they emphasize like it a, enough to, it's got to mean thing. something. Well, yeah. I, do you listen to music in the car? Of course, all the time. I always or do, podcasts. but there's definitely times when I don't, and there's always a reason why I don't because it's I'm, I'm focused. So I'm when you on that, because I might go a, a full a f- day yeah. up the 405 and not listen to a single thing, yeah. but the thoughts in my head, and then I also might be DJ John the entire time. So when you're driving and you're <laughs> not listening John. to music, why are you? Why are you not listening to music? Because like I'm either I have to focus on where are I'm you going. Stressed out? Yeah, or I just I just need to. Not listen to music. Because you, you do it for a living and you just have yeah. to turn it off. I get it. Okay. Or right. going to a tennis lesson. I don't know. There's no answer, but I just think the contrast was worth pointing out. And it was a long, it was a long. They show it. Yeah. They show her, they show her silence and they show his, his singing. Singing along. A nitpick that I can't reconcile. Why the Sting song get butchered like that? We yeah. kind of have solved it, but the police, every breath you take, which Autopsy nicely described as the ultimate stalker song. Yeah, I'll be watching you. And hence contextually fitting, right? It was mashed up with the Peter Gunn theme by Henry Mancini, which is a cliche procedural sound bed. Is that best. the Chips Ahoy song? I just kept seeing Chips Ahoy <laughs> dancing. Yeah, it's used in traditional cop stuff. I just want to know business-wise, again, it's how my brain works, I'm sorry, like, how did the police's people allow that to like to like bastardize their music? You know, it's not even a remix. It's like a cross pollination, right? Wouldn't you just be buying the rights for both of those songs? Yeah. You're buying the rights, and obviously they're agreeing to it. But that's what I'm saying. Like, why would they agree to that? Because they probably didn't know that's what they're going to do to it. Because once you buy the sample, I mean, I guess that's not true. I just had to pay for a sample, and they want to hear what you're using it for. They want to know because of they also then it depends how much. Of the song you're using, therefore the price changes. We talked about this earlier in the pod, but the justification for it, if it is true, makes it okay. Yes. Um, If David Chase said, look, I'm doing a middle finger to this whole artifice, and the police are the best band to represent that middle finger. Closed. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Police, Peter Gunn, like, there's the play on the words, too. Totally, totally. Um, It is crazy. Apparently it was David Chase's wife's idea per autopsy. I asked him. He didn't remember where exactly he read that. He thinks it came from one of Brett Martin's books. Okay, then I'll get off it. But Sting is known for being very, like, anal about what he lets his music, because he was up for a deodorant commercial for Don't Stand So Close, (laughs) and they wanted to use a Don't Stand So Close, and it was for a deodorant, and he said no, because he didn't want it to be associated with a deodorant. But they, and they gave the, him, like, millions of dollars, and he's like, sorry. Credit to the pitch, though. Yeah. That's I a mean, great pitch. They were, it was like a Subway commercial that never aired. I and could people see his were, manager being like, don't sweat it. Yeah, it's a good it's, idea. Yeah. It's a lot of money, Sting. Satriales. Mm. Another fun line moment. I gotta watch TV to figure out the world. I say if it's The Sopranos, then that would be affirmative. That was, to me, a way of them saying that we're the shit, in my opinion. A little a little self-congratulations on two seasons of amazing content. Um, thoughts on Polly's sanitation rant? Uh, I did some research. Okay. And apparently women's bathrooms are dirtier than men's, according to I a study too. from the University of Arizona. Pray tell. Um, if you were looking for how frequently do you find germs in, that potentially could make you ill, says Chuck Jerba of the University of Arizona to the publication, we found that it's twice as likely to encounter those germs in women's restrooms. Reason? I don't have any other information there, but... You know that's my next question. Yeah. No, (laughs) and I I wanted to... I felt like there was this, like, sexist... I want to vindicate men and say, women's bathrooms are dirtier. I'll tell you what, though. We are dirtier. I don't care. I would eat maple ice cream off of a woman's bathroom floor before I eat off a men's bathroom floor just because I know what goes on in a men's bathroom floor. Like, it's just not... You can't sell me on that. I don't care. The split stream and all the the randomness that g- occurs everywhere and... It was, it's, such, it was such a specific ice cream, though. Was that... Would that be your well, flavor, it too? It's wink, wink. It's poly walnuts. It's oh, yeah, ice cream. I got it. I, oh, I missed that. I missed that, too. Well, and up there with, like, uh, the Silvio and the cheese problem mm-hmm. thing, this is just a easy reoccurring meme that I can just regurgitate. It's, it's just fodder for you. Oh, yeah. We have at least had three or four, maybe more. By the way, his hair on point this episode. It was extra special yeah. poly hair. I think as he got extra screen time. It might have something to do with it because he was particularly slick. Got a fresh dye. So I love the character development that took place in the rant. Um, 
it's it's giving us context on who this person is. We don't normally get it before, but he like really, really deeply thinks about sanitary matters, and I personally love it. Do you guys know people like that, by the way? Is it, would we consider this OCD a, a little bit? But his wife, Vic, of fist bumps rather than shakes but, hands. But the right kind of OCD. Okay, <laughs> this have, is the right kind of this OCD. Is the right kind okay. of reasonable amount of OCD. <laughs> yeah, right kind of OCD. And as a woman, you should appreciate this. Like, even I'm teaching my son. Always wipe the seat. Even if you use, yeah. if you lift the lid, take a tissue and wipe the seat. That can go a long Wait. way in a relationship, too. I've, yeah. I've learned that and I've scored wipe some the points seat. at home. Why do you have to wipe the seat if you put the seat up? Because there might be like, there might be, um, what's the word? Uh, splatter. Splatter. So I'm thinking of my significant up other. onto the bottom of the seat? So the back and the actual seat itself. So I You do want a, a double wipe? You do, I do a, a double quick, wipe? I do a quick swipe, especially if I see something. If the splatter is made, if I make them, or if I think I might have had like a bad aim if it's like 2 o'clock in the morning and I have to do like the old man piss, I'll wipe the seat because I know that when my wife gets up in the morning, I don't want her to have to sit on that. See what Isn't you, that courtesy? You know what you do and what you could do and what I do at night? What? You just sit. Yeah. So this leads to we're going to go on a crazy rant on. Do men sit? Yes. I I, I do. I do when I need to get away. Yeah. I sit and read, and I pretend to go for a long extended (laughs) period of time. Now seat up, seat down. Like I'm getting told right now, I have a post-it note in my bathroom that says, "Don't forget to put the seat down." Can you not pee with the seat down and wipe it? I mean, you're wiping it with putting the seat up. Why don't you just pee with it down and then wipe the seat? Admission: I pee with the seat down. So that's why you wipe yeah. it. That requires okay. ex- like I got really pre- I got calculated aim. aim. It's a big circle. How, it's not that big, man. How much we flow old, you guys we live got? In an old vintage home. There's not, there's not <laughs> oh, a lot of room there. It's an extra tiny toilet. Um, You're listening to pot of pain. <laughs> yeah. So Polly's rant is what makes the show so relatable. Even the people who have nothing to do with that life, you're seeing a human acting like a human. And that's, one, again, goes back to the reasons we love the show and the reasons we keep watching the show and we're talking about the show 20 fucking years later. It's humans being humans. And that's what's timeless about it. The last thing I want to say on Polly is I love how they spent a disproportionate amount of screen time on him talking about that instead of the procedural cliche of the FBI. Again, that's in, that's so intentional. Totally. It's the middle finger that Autopsy mentioned, even the Soprano Sessions, right? The new book that came out. They're mentioning this whole middle finger to convention. This is a case study in that. Um, Gigi sitting across from Patsy. How ironic was that? Yeah, you loved that. It's ironic. I mean, yeah. it was convenient. Yeah, it's convenient. Okay, and I I appreciated. Was it lazy? I also, well, I thought it was lazy, but it was also inclusive to someone who hasn't watched the show yet. That's mm. jumping in into season three. That's true. For them to show the recap of Gigi actually assassinated. Yeah. Smart. And I'm like, I don't need that. I know I what know. happened. I got the inside yeah. conversation. I'm with the wherewithal. So I felt a little like elitist almost like yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. need to be reminded but I guess this new guy does yeah I think it was useful to introduce Patsy because we he, he's the, this is the first episode that we, he's, he's really Patsy right this yeah. is the, the new character so but it was it was ironic you know just having them sit across from each other Patsy stares him down my question is how does Patsy know what were the tells for you guys are there any tells or is it just baked in that was my question does he know I don't he well, he clearly does, right? So I originally asked how, like, how does he know? But he goes to the house to try to shoot Tony. So he clearly senses. Where did he get that sense from? That you did this? You have any idea? Any theory? Any Netflix spinoff series? Because who perfect, else would? David Chase. I mean, Silvio alludes to it a little bit and passes it off as maybe some police guys trying to tell him that Tony. It, it makes sense. I mean. You don't have to be a genius to know that if Junior just tried to kill Tony and suddenly people start getting whacked on Junior's side, who else is going to go after them? I agree. I think Silvio has a bit to do with it because in the scene at the Bing, he asks him, like, oh, you've got nothing to say. Like, let's forget. And we know, we learn later, Patsy and Silvio, Silvio uh, defends Patsy for a job that Chrissy's in charge of. So, like, there's a bit of an alliance between Patsy and Silvio that we don't know yet, but we know later happens. And he's quiet, not talking about anything a little. Naya's sitting here with her arms crossed right now, like she just dropped the fucking mic again. Silvio was in on it. I think a little bit. Damn. He alluded to it. Fucking if revelation. I was to Maybe. I, I, this is where I'm going to give some pushback. I don't know necessarily. He was paying attention to the golf game. He wasn't paying attention to the conversation. He was pretending to pay attention uh, to the golf game. I, but I think he's grieving the loss of his brother. True. 
They feel guilty. Just think of it this way. When um, Pussy thought that Tony knew. And um, Skip's like, you're just worried because you're different and Tony isn't. And I think it's a little bit of that. Let's 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 look for it. Totally. And I don't. But, and I think it's like it has to happen. Like they they know <laughs> it's get so excited. But you you do have a consistent like what last three four episodes she's been she dropping slips, some. She, she but in the slipstream yeah. too. It's yeah. like not, like not even like we're just humming along and then Naya's like boom. Yeah. Well, it's just and a it's theory. All off the cuff too. No, no but it's a legit because I've always been. So this is going to be really hot take controversial. I've always been suspicious. Of Silvio. But Silvio's loyal. He's never going to say, like, he's going to be like, what are you going to do, though, Patsy? This is how it is. Loyalty and diplomacy can be two different things. That's true. I'll throw it back to you. Like, if you're running with this Naya theory on on Silvio, like, what does Silvio gain by letting Philly know that Tony put the hit on, or Patsy know that Tony put the hit on Philly? Remember his wife? Oh, we're gonna give it. We're gonna we're gonna spoil. Yeah. But he's number two, effectively, right now. He's number two. Let's just call him number two. If you rub number one, what happens to number two? You get a bump up. The whole idea is power is power. We think we learned that from the show Billions. Yeah. Okay. Power is power. Money is not power. Power is power. The one thing that Tony has that Silvio doesn't is power. And usually generally speaking, in all of history, uh, going back to Caesar, Brutus, et tu Brute, right? That was his number two. And his number two rubbed him out because everybody wants power. The 48 Laws of Power is a book. So I'm always inherently suspicious about number twos because they're one heartbeat away from the presidency, if you will, right? So, and a lot of people hate, are going to hate this, but Silvio's great. And we know, so we know the show, but it's a very logical writing point for the writer's room, for the guys in the room. Like, can we paint this guy to be somewhat off the off kilter? And Naya's suggestion is a beautiful way to paint him as off kilter and to plant the seed that he might make a move on Tony. Maybe that's, I, I definitely, I like it. it's, yeah, that could work. I just think more it's all his, his power is, is just knowledge at this point and being like, Hey Patsy, like, like just because he's the one who's straight with everyone, and the yeah. fact that he's he calls Tony out for you've got a problem with leadership. Like he's the one who's telling the truth, and he likes playing number two. But yes, number two is always get, hate being number two subconsciously. In at a certain level, yeah. Some people are content, but contentment only goes so far. And if he could get Patsy to do win. his dirty work. Whoa. <laughs> I saw what you said there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then he doesn't have to do the dirty work no more. Yeah. And then he's number one. <laughs> Do you see that? Or it's a little win for number two. The problem two. Is, is that Sylvia has no fucking idea what it's like to be number one. Exactly. So, spoiler alert, right? But that's where I'm getting at. We know that it gets to that point for him. This could be the early germinating the seed of that. The kernel, as Naya says. I love it, Naya. I love it. High five, Naya. High five, Thank Naya. You. I tried. Okay, Tennis Coach is one of my spinoff series. And it would be called Kitties.com Job in San Diego. That's the tennis instructor's wife, of course. So Carm looked like she'd been jilted at the altar when the tennis ace was skipping town. And that would be sort of like episode one of the Sopranos universe where the jilting happens. And then tennis coach and his wife, Kitty, get in a car and he's like daydreaming about Carmela. That's the pilot. Okay. Love it. So AJ and friends, just real quickly, the thing of note was his curiosity about his friend's jersey and football. Notice the camera zoom. The camera zoom in was suggesting that his brain was turning a little bit, which is something that I just, again, I I get super excited about. But football becomes a storyline, and this appears to be the genesis of it. Um, Meadows dorm. Okay, I promise you I'd get to this, Naya. In sync is on Meadows' side of the room. Well, first of all, okay, so InSync was on Meadow's side of the room and nothing but absolute vodka posters on Caitlin's side of the room. Interesting juxtaposition. Thoughts in general, reactions in general to a college dorm room. Relatable, unrelatable? Very relatable. Okay. I InSync was on point for you? Well, it was just the du- like the duality. Like Meadow, obviously she her parents have a different it's different family, but she's from New Jersey. The other girl's from a small town and where is she from? Uh Caitlin, do we remember? Somewhere Iowa? small. Yeah. Not a city person. Yeah. The city all. is overwhelming for her. Yes, but she first embraced it, hence the over exaggerated vodka posters everywhere. She's loving life. And then like a week in, 
I'm out of here, which is very common. When I moved to New York and was in a room with four girls, same thing happened. We had, like, two girls per room, and, like, everyone was loving it. We went to crazy parties. Week two, one of our roommates, like, chopped all our hair off and went crazy and couldn't take the city and left. So the Meadow thing for you then is also kind of she was over it because she'd been familiar with the city her whole life? She's a nerd. So she's there to study, and she's putting up things like she has like the silly jewelry thing she's all the right things in her dorm room like but i also, would not be her friend but also is some of it that like she's c- comfortable she's comfortable in the city she's more comfortable and the other girl overdoes it and then loses doesn't know like even the subway experience she couldn't even she starts to get obsessed with like humanity and how people can't deal with things so i took a literal sense on the sync and that meadow is definitely more in sync with college And uh, then I did a deep dive into that absolute vodka poster. (laughs) So in 1980, the advertising agency TBWA made an ad for the absolute vodka featuring a bottle of its product with a halo above Mm. with the words absolute perfection. I didn't realize that it was such an old ad, but it's the play on that was an instant hit and spawned one of the most iconic ad campaigns of the 80s and 90s, all including the absolute bottle and various creative displays. So maybe Kaylin was a communications major and just really appreciated advertising. Fun fact, the actress who plays Caitlin went to BBNN, which is a school that is in my league, and I partied with her one night. In no high, way. In high school, yeah. She def- definitely doesn't remember, but yeah. That's amazing. I love that. So I'm going to counter your thing that she was a nerd. And I'm going to say that Meadow got the window side because she's a boss, and that's how they do. She got there first because Carmela got there early because she knew she wanted first pick. Who was the creepy woman? Oh, wait. It was the FBI. FBI. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Does the room 319 mean anything to you guys? I tried to find some Kubrick in there. There wasn't anything. Oh, cool. I like that you even said that, though. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Because they're like, why the fuck's her room 319? Everything's intentional. Everything has a reason. There must be a reason. So the song playing in the background in the common area was called Van Gogh. I love the little low-key art reference there. Again, it's not been confirmed or denied that this art was a heavily featured thing in the show, but it's more prevalent than ever, especially when they hit you over the nose like that. Uh, Husband of Housekeeper is different than the guy who got the jacket! (laughs) I can't believe I didn't notice. I can't believe I didn't notice either. I almost thought you were wrong. I was like, no, you're right. I also think I would not pass that test. The citizen test. I don't know those answers. Oh, I was actually I was like, gonna, I don't, I, like, I almost looked it up and was like, nope. I was I'm actually going to quiz you guys, but yeah. then, I, then I thought, like, they, she actually gives the answer, the Martin Luther King thing. And then what's the first holiday? I have no clue. Thanksgiving. The Pilgrims. Yeah. Are you sure? I think it's Thanksgiving. The first holiday ever, like, made or, like, in the, in the, in when the calendar? the country, in the 13 colonies. I think it was Thanksgiving. I guess that would make sense. Um, that would be my guess, at least. I would have thought of it like, no... what's the first of Jan- Like, what the first, f- I'd be like, Valentine's Day. We know. learn that the housekeeper is stealing. And to me, that just signified more everyday life kind of shit, at least pre-Nest Cam. Okay, but I feel like Tony would have CCTV in his house. So it's kind of alarming to me that they would be, she would be robbing them when he's probably got surveillance of his own. I don't think he does in there. You don't think they have cameras in the house? No, that sounds dangerous. Oh, like it could get wiretapped, like bugged. Yeah, like with modern day Tony have on Alexa, I think you'd be concerned. Oh, heck no, those, coo- those cookies like crazy. Yeah. Talk about cookies. <laughs> Alexa hears everything, even when it's off. It's like, Alexa, that. play Steely Dan. Yeah. The modern day FBI, though, if they got a sneak and peek, they would, would stick an Ale- they would stick an Alexa device in there. Another stylistic point, okay? At this point, it's an intentional pattern. It's another awkward, jagged cut from Quantico to Tony's driveway. This one, to me, felt like an error. Like the feds are broken record or a disjointed mess. Like, what are they trying to convey with these fades? Your first one was the passage of time. This one signified something was broken or something was going to fail. Um, just putting it out there. Uh, question. Is Furio driving Richie's Cadillac? I didn't think of that until you mentioned it, but probably. Yeah, that's, I didn't. It's, it's strange. You think he convinced Tony? To let him keep it? That just seems like an amateur move. If Richie disappears, his car should too. Okay. Caitlin's subway breakdown. Been there. I've been there too. Yeah. People just staring blankly at whatever happens in a car. 
right? I was in a car where someone was literally urinating in their seat, homeless person. I just acted like nothing was happening. Yeah. Um, This New York City subway thing actually got me thinking about a really cool podcast idea. It's documented stories of actual serious human encounters on the subway. That is a dark one. I would listen. Human moments, not real ones where you fake it, but like actual human encounters. And then the two people telling the story of like a real moment between each other. Just thought it would be kind of fun. I saw a girl throw up Doritos and then eat them off the floor. I thought a lot of the, like, CSI moments I didn't like. There were a lot of lines given to actors we don't know in, like, the lab with the lamp. Yeah. It was weird, and I was like, they got some— they, A lot of people got a lot of lines that we never see ever again in I this episode. I have something on him. But this is what John liked, though. He's been waiting for— Skip to be some CSI moments. to be interfacing with his FBI's. Tony tells Patsy to bring his younger son over to the house, which smelled of precursor to the relationship Engagement, with Meadow. Yeah. Without spoiling anything, I thought he was just being nice. Okay, so here's my question: Is Tony pulling a Pablo Escobar? by naming all of Patsy's living family members. This is particularly for Justin. I hope when Justin listens to this, he does a little break dance, a little, a little MJ in his living room. Playa or plateau. Um, is he pulling a Pablo Escobar by naming all of Patsy's living family members to scare him into submission? Yeah, it was pretty ruthless. He was very direct. Do you have a problem? No. And then he segued into talking about how much money Patsy makes now. You got a daughter, right? Well, he talked about her, him being able to buy her a house. You got so, a son too, right? Yeah. I mm. thought he was showing that he knows about his life. Mm, no, am I being too na- nice? Yeah, you being a little naive there. Really? Because he was, he, he was going down the list. He was? He was. Damn. I thought he was like, I know about you. Like, I know I care about your family. Come on over. Like, the boys will watch, have a beer. He's like, let me Don't you, you make more money? over it. Maybe 1%, Naya. Yeah. But... I'm going to try to find ways to incorporate Richie lines into the podcast going forward as much as possible because he's not with us anymore. But Tony was totally flexing. Yeah, he was. All right, I'll get that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Totally flexing. There's a writing about, uh, in that conversation behind Tony, there's a hamburger sign, a I hamburger s- patty. Yeah, I saw that. And it's the the inference of you're if, go you don't, yeah, if you don't play ball, you're going to become a patsy patty. Patsy patty. Yeah. It's there. It's yeah. there. It's it there. there. It's there for us to determine. I want to say one thing about Soprano Sessions, by the way, the book. There's this whole big thing that's going on in the internets right now that the story has been revealed, what happened at the very end. I don't actually think it changes anything. It's set up so that we can make our own decision about how it ended, just like we can make our own decision right here. This is a case in point about whether Tony was Pablo Escobaring him or whether Tony was having a moment of humanity with him. Come to the pool, we'll fry some dogs. Or we'll- yeah. Well, that was the note that I had is when he makes that, and it may have been accidental just to reference the pool, but to Patsy at that point, you have to be paranoid as fuck and be like, oh yeah. Oh my yeah, God, he, he said in, that. He, he must have saw me. Like, and that nips this in the bud without spoiling. Like, we're going to see Patsy. He's he's ruthless in the future of seasons and, of course. and so on. But uh, Tony took made good work of this. And he could have just eliminated him, but he, he found an alternative route. He made good work, but not wet work. Ooh, I like it. Um, final basement sequence, okay? Very reminiscent of the ballet dance that Tony and Carmela do at the end of the season two's so first good. episode. Because that sequence is one of the most beautiful sequences to me, even though nothing fucking happens. So this is the same thing, only this time there's conversation. And there's hopefulness, even though they're unknowingly under surveillance. Thought it was super smart. I also really love this pattern matching, which I mentioned in another part of the show with the whole... Tony walking down the staircase, or walking down the driveway, looking to see if Pussy's car's there. The pattern matching to me is very synonymous with art, right? Mm -hmm. So each episode is its own canvas, but later works, a lot of painters have a signature style, and they go from one painting to the next, and a remnant of their prior painting will be in the new painting. This is the same idea. So Tony lies about the Russian girl, who we take to be Svetlana. Got some Russian girl coming in to take care of my mother. Oh yeah, where'd you find her? Agency. Mamutter, Mamutter, M-U-D-D-E-R. He says he found her at an agency. And my question to you guys is a human question. Why lie here? 
It's an easy enough thing to be honest about. What is he lying about? He says, I found a woman for my mother at an agency, but in reality, it's Irina's sister. She didn't work for an agency. She doesn't? She doesn't? No. Well, that should answer it then, right? I mean, that was my thought. But she already knows about Irina, so maybe he can make good on it saying, look, it's really over with her, but this girl Svetlana's his sister. I don't know. I'm just, that sounds just, like trouble. That sounds worse. When in doubt, yeah. lie to your wife. Yes. Yeah. But see, that's one thing. If you want to you buy yourself out of the doghouse. She had a website or was making it. I like that. I love I love that. The subtext and the little references. Wasn't of, she? Yes. She was trying to get yeah, yeah, yeah. her own site yes. going. Uh-huh. She's, she's, self she's su- legit. She's self-fucking-sufficient. Yeah. That whole speech, I can't wait to get to that speech. That's white. She puts her pony boots on like Your leg. White caps. White uh. caps is probably going to be a two-parter, by the way, guys. Ooh, could we do it? Like an all-nighter. Like, like yeah. a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Did none of you guys notice that he said, pick the lock, Wilson? I just thought of Castaway. Oh, but it was actually another musical well, reference. Well, Wilson Pickett. Wilson Pickett. Yeah. Oh, but I thought of the fucking volleyball y'all keep talking about. Sold. <laughs> sold. We just made our... We just made... Dimes, it, dimes, dimes, dimes. Dimes, Somebody who's listening is going to put that in Wikipedia. It I was, was also, like, it was also up, Wilson. Low, I was like, fucking hell. Well, y'all are out. now mocking when me. When was Castaway made? It was, it was made after. Yeah. We're gonna, we're gonna, you're going to corroborate that. You're my fact checker. Fact nope. check that shit. Okay? It was in the works. Those movies take years to make. It, it, was, it was definitely... They knew it was in the it works. It was in development. Yeah. It might not have been in the can, but it was in development. 12 years attached. David Chase wrote <laughs> Sopranos in high school. Um, so, uh, 2000. Uh, oh, so there you go. Mic drop. Somebody that loves the podcast right now and is sufficiently ambitious, enter this in the Wikipedia entry and attribute <laughs> it to Naya Bertino. Okay? So uh, a subtlety. Tony works out to Hotel California mm-hmm. while in a basement in Jersey, mm-hmm. albeit a very nice home in New Jersey. There's no doubt about that. But I just found that very cute irony. Hotel California, the lyrics of that song, the tenor of that song, the mood of that song in a New Jersey basement. Just too much not to mention. I also love the zoom in on the light, which yeah. we talked about earlier. Autopsy cleverly concludes that the light is a temporary fix for the sudden loss of Nancy Marchand. Mm. Cue the music. But the, the zoom in on the light, I want to emphasize something that's, we always talk about how The Sopranos is like the antithesis of TV. He's going outside of the box and he's rewriting the rules. But the slow zoom into the light and then the cue of the music and the fade to black was such masterful ownership of the television medium. It's basically saying, look, I just made a whole episode where I motherfucked the television medium. But then I ended it so that you go, son of a bitch. That's amazing television. That is just so much flexing. The song High Fidelity by Elvis Costello is the Fate to Black song. The most on-point lyric from that song is, Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Uh, do you have last call? I tried to find some symbolism while I was trying to go deep, and I looked up water flooding. And mm. if you have a dream about water flooding into a house, it can represent integrating feelings with thoughts and ideas. Water flooding uh, over ground can symbolize changes in your foundation that need to give way to feelings. Flooding can be a positive dream about being in the threshold of emotional growth and the release of feelings. And all well, of those segue from into, the last episode of the ocean dreams, and now it's literally a flood in his ba- basement, which is that makes sense then. To have all this kick off and to, to be a catalyst to the entire episode, I just wanted to figure out what that meant on a deeper level. I like it. Yeah. It's interesting the basement flooded where they bugged, too. That is actually true. That's interesting. That just might also, you guys closer to the fishes. indirectly answered all the weird fades that Alan Coulter used in this episode to show that the Fed's plan was going to be foiled. You know, they just couldn't close it. Okay, so um, I got two things. First off, strategically, this episode was clever as fuck. This is what we were talking about when we were off mic. You weren't into it. It's super clever because it identified a clear and present danger to Tony that wasn't Livia. Mm. For the first two seasons, That's it's true. all about Livia trying to off him. And for a moment in this episode, you actually forget about her. She's not a central character or a part of this universe, right? That had to be strategically figured out. I would love to know how many iterations of this they came up with to figure out how are we going to move forward without this dynamo of a character, which is essentially what they were doing, right? It's sad, but it was absolutely necessary 
that they get this right to be able to build the story without her going forward. That's why I say this episode was strategic as fuck, and I have a newfound love for it because in the chronology, I always knew that she passed away, but I never knew when and where and when. Now dissecting the show, it happened here, and they had to start a season without her. Yeah, and super clever. It was an it was an episode about the FBI because it had to be. It was an ever present antagonist in the first two seasons, but to bring it to light now. To use the analogy of this fishbowl, we got a glimpse into the pet store. Yeah. Yeah. They had to go to their bench. Sometimes your star player falls down, like Kobe Bryant, busts his Achilles, he gets up and he makes his free throws, but then he out. Now, they have to go to their bench, and the FBI is their bench. That's the writer's room, right? They have all these, like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And the person that said, you know what, let's push the FBI to the fore— that person's a genius. It was probably David Chase, but maybe it was one of the writers. You never know. I get that. I just thought there were like a couple too many. Like there's an NYC sky shot that was random. There's a couple random building shots that I could have done without. I love. Did you? She segued to my next point. I love that. What was so? That? I have a th- I have a thought on that. Yeah. It was. Do you think there's a reason for those? Yes. Okay. Tell me. Okay. So I really enjoyed those overhead shots. I really enjoy those in general. Like I'm, my legs are shaking right now. I'm so excited. Okay. Oh I really enjoyed the wide them. overhead shots. You totally put the fucking, seat up for you. You Damn totally it. fucking baited me. I'm so excited. My armpits are getting sweaty. Okay. So the overhead shots of Quantico, mm-hmm. which was a stock footage. They didn't go to fucking Quantico. They took stock footage from wherever you buy stock footage from. And Lower Manhattan was also stock footage. They got the stock footage shots, you know, shout out to the Twin Towers. Very beautiful scene that you see for a moment. Even though they may be stock footage, not only are they cinematic, which is always great when they're a TV show that goes cinematic, which is what David Chase wanted to be. He wanted to make movies True. to begin with. Not only are they cinematic and rare in The Sopranos, but they contextualize things so nicely in a way words or story can't. What I mean by that is the show, The Sopranos, is about intimate moments between humans or groups of humans and pulling back for a moment, taking you up into the sky for a minute, gives you context and gives you perspective and Having your nose deep in a... It's like having your nose deep in a book, but occasionally true. looking up. Yep. Okay? The, I'm my, with you. My ophthalmologist tells me, in order for your eyes to stop getting ridiculously poor, when you read, every 10 minutes, look out into the distance. Look out your window and look out into the horizons. But it's true. It's the same thing. You're so in-depth with these characters. David Chase is like, you know what? I'm going to give you a moment to take a sip of your coffee or to take a sip of your wine. I guess that's why I didn't like them. You're right. So you don't like that. Well, but I, that makes sense why you want to, you, you have to pull out for a second. I'm going to use your term, which is a great term. It's a palate cleanse. That's true, yeah. We're going to go from New Jersey and we're going to go to a high panning shot of Manhattan and then we're going to go zoom in on a Columbia dorm room. Totally. It's television fucking genius. It's, it's simple. It's easy. It's giving us a lot of credit as a viewer to, yeah. to be able to digest all that. I know the convention, but I'm going to deviate so far from it to make you think that I don't. And then I'm going to bring you right back to it to let you know that I'm the boss. I got the window yeah. view. Yeah. Okay. And the, the other thing Naya, about the high shots is it's a chance for you to recalibrate. Yeah. Okay. And that's why these, this what these scenes do. They're done so infrequently and carefully that they're actually effective, memorable, and lasting. And with that, I salute you guys. Uh, we'll be back next week talking episode two of season three. Thank you, John. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Naya. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next week. (laughs) 